For those of you that might be here for the first time, we have been studying on how to study and interpret the Bible with the goal of application. How does that relate to us? What is the meaning of what the biblical writer had in mind when he wrote what he wrote? So I've gone through some steps already. We covered making observations, and that was one of the things in, in that assignment of 1 John. You, you're not studying the Greek. You're not studying the Hebrew. You're not trying to provide already an application. You're just trying to observe what is already there in the text. So we did that part, and then we studied a little bit of, of uh, cultural background. What is it, why is it important for us to know the history behind um, the context of Scripture? And we studied the literary context, the different genres of Scripture um, that you have poetry, you have narrative, and the way you interpret them is different from each other. And then the last class, we talked about um, the things that we bring to the text, the things that are pre-understandings, our presuppositions that sometimes can be good to help us understand a passage better, but it can also be bad when it's distorting the actual meaning. And I, I remember showing you the, um, the illustration of Jonah, right? When we think about him being in the belly of the big fish, we picture him like Pinocchio, <laughs> just in this big wide area with light, not dark at all, not tight. It's just, it just has plenty of room in the belly of the fish. And that's not at all what Scripture portrays <laughs> it was. So these are pre-understandings, things that we bring into the text that might not be helpful. Now, given some of us grew up in church, we may have a little bit more background than other people, and that might help us to understand more the context of Scripture. All right? So today, we're really covering um, a different topic on word studies. All right? Word studies. Let's start with a word of prayer, and then I'll, I'll jump right into the lesson. Gracious Father, thank you for your gracious word toward us. Lord, we're thankful for um, your faithfulness in our lives and that Scripture still speaks to us, Lord, be it through our devotionals day to day, be it through Bible reading or Bible studies or all these different things. We're so thankful for the opportunities to uh, engage with your word. And I pray, Father, that you would increase our understanding and our ability really to understand and to interpret correctly your word so that we might live by them. I pray that you would bless our time today and that be an encouragement to my brothers and sisters uh, that are diligent to do their, their work and uh, for those that haven't yet that will um, even be able to think on how can we put some more effort on doing those things. We're thankful for the privilege and the blessing of learning these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, have you ever tried to put together a 1,000 puzzle? It's kind of an easy question for Minnesotans. I think it's, it's a thing here. <laughs> the winter is getting and it's coming and everybody is doing puzzles. So the box normally features the, the scenery or whatever the picture you have there in the puzzle. Then you dump all 1,000 pieces and every little piece 
doesn't doesn't make sense. Some of them you can identify a face or an animal, and that kind of might be the, the 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 clues that you use to kind of start putting it together. Again and again, you pick up a puzzle and look at the sh look at the shape of it. Does it match the, the 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 color that I'm looking for? And then you try to fit it into the larger scheme of things. Um, so especially if you're doing a, a 2,000, 3,000 puzzle, the pieces doesn't make much sense to you. Like, I have no idea where this is going because it's so, so big, and you're just getting one little piece of it. So every piece contributes something to the picture, even as the larger picture gives definition to each individual piece. And the more you put them together, the more you start seeing things that you didn't see yet. Words are like a puzzle. Uh, they fit together to form a story or a paragraph in a letter of what we call the big picture. Until you know the meaning of certain words, you will not be able to grasp the meaning of the whole passage. So certain words are crucial for understanding the passage, and that's why we um, so need it. Not knowing the meaning of certain words in a passage of Scripture can be compared to the frustrating discovery that you don't have all the pieces in the puzzle. Have you ever been there? <laughs> Where you're, you're working at the puzzle and you can't find this, those three or four pieces and it's just very frustrating. You probably experienced this when you're trying to do a used puzzle, for instance, that you bought in a thrift store. <laughs> Not all of them are bad, but some of them have pieces missing. So you buy it knowing that some pieces might be missing, but it is quite frustrating. Like individual pieces of a puzzle, words bring the Lord, larger picture to life. Words are worth studying. Uh, the New Testament scholar, and I put the quote there for you, Gordon Fee, says that the aim of word study is to try to understand as precisely as possible what the author was trying to convey by his word by his use of this word in its context. So he could have cho chosen a myriad of other words that are synonyms, and yet he didn't. <laughs> and why was that? He had something in mind. As readers, we do not determine the meaning of biblical words. And I just want to put this up front here already. We're not trying to determine the meaning of the words. They already are determined. The author did that. He determined the meaning of the word. Rather, we're trying to discover what the biblical writer meant when he used that particular word. We should always keep in mind that there's this distinction between determining and discovering. It's already there. What we're trying to do is to discover that meaning that the author intended. So in addition to serving as a purpose statement, Fee's definition also highlights the importance of context. You don't get isolated words, and, and you see this in a lot of um, cults and false teachings, is that they will pick up one isolated word. I remember watching uh, uh, you know, on those television preachers, and he's quoting the Greek and you know, all, all the, the, that stuff, and I'm like, boy, oh my goodness, for a person that is unlearned and untaught, this is actually quite convincing because they're picking up words out of its context, but still using the Greek or, you know, trying to sound it smart. So 
with this lesson, real and the next, are all about studying the words of Scripture. Even if you don't know the original languages, Hebrew or Greek, so keep this in mind. Even if you don't know Hebrew or Greek, like most of us don't, you can still learn to use interpretive tools to do a word study properly. And I will show you how you do it. I will start the class by explaining how to identify the words in a passage that need further study and how to determine what a word could mean, and finally how to decide what word that word does mean in its context. Since most people learn a great deal by having a model to imitate, we'll use several examples here in the class. Um, I, we don't have slides, that's why I'm <clears throat> telling you to keep your notes there so you can follow along. So again, you don't need to know Greek or Hebrew to do a word study properly. You can do this, but you need to know the proper procedure. What is the steps that we take to do that word study? Um, the authors of our textbook, uh, in a different book, says that your reward for studying words carefully will often be a breathtaking view of a majestic biblical scene. In the same way that when you're done with a puzzle, you are encouraged to see the big picture um, and how pretty it, it looks. It, it is the same thing when you really comprehend all the nuances of a biblical text. So just a quick review here on observation and interpretation. All right. So I think this uh, some some that did the, the homework on Third John, I think there might have been a little bit of a confusion, which which was good because you were trying. <laughs> Um, is that in the face of observation, you're not really trying to interpret the passage or to, to apply what the passage is saying. At the observation phase, you're just, you're just reading it in depth. You're just trying to, to notice the, the connections between the words, um, if there's any figures of speech in there. Well, what does it say? You're, not, you're trying to answer the question, what does it say, not what it means? What it means question is related to interpretation. Now I'm going to interpret what he actually meant. So the information that is digested during the stage in those facts which were uncovered during the previous stage. So during the stage of observation, the interpreter is studied the passage for the sake of gathering information. Now, during the stage of interpretation, the interpreter assimilates that information and studies the passage for the purpose of understanding it. So, I, as in the, in the chart there, it says, in the observation phase, you are reading for the sake of the information. You're just trying to get what the author is just writing, stating. So, you might write in different wor wording, uh, maybe rephrasing what the author said, um, but you, so far, you're not interpreting or applying. Then, in the face of interpretation, is I'm reading for the sake of understanding what it's being said. Right? So, normally in the observation phase, you might put some questions. Um, I wonder, what does it mean to walk in truth? Um, you don't know yet what that means, if, unless, you know, the, there's in the surrounding context already, you can know for sure. Um, you want to avoid being definitive <laughs> with your affirmatives during the, that, that stage of observation. But when you're on the phase of interpreting, okay, I have done the groundwork here to get familiarized with the passage. Um, I know the connections between the words and the sentences and the paragraphs. 
But now what does it mean? <laughs> that is the interpretation phase. And so one of the first things that we want to do, and we have covered some of it, it's the, studying the context, it's huge. And then studying individual words that might add more insight into the passage. So the observation stage is identify the non-routine terms which occupy a key role in conveying the intent of the author. These words now deserve some careful examination. What does it mean when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd? What, what, what is that? Was it meaning that he was a, a farmer that took care of actual sheep? Um, what it means that he shepherds his people. So in the observation phase, you would ask those questions, and then in the interpretation phase, you're trying to answer those questions. So simply to acknowledge the presence of, of certain words is not enough. The interpreter must ask, now, um, ask, what is the precise meaning of this term in its context? Why did the writer choose this particular word to communicate his message and not another? As, um, just like in English, we have many synonyms um, to, to, explain, to explain a certain word. Why would then an author choose one over the other? Right? There, there's nuances to, to words. So um, a, a careless person, it's not, it can be reckless, but it doesn't mean that every careless person is reckless. Um, or haphazard, they're putting themselves in danger. Uh, just, it could be that, well, I'm just carefree. I, don't, I, don't <laughs> I just don't care about many things. So it, you see the difference? So the authors, they, they have all these gamut of words that they could use, but they are picking some because they have a point. All right? Now, we have limitations. We don't have all the time in the world to say, I... I'm preaching through 1 Samuel, right? And I'm preaching a whole chapter. I'm not going to translate every single word that it is in that text. I just don't have the time to do that every single word or trying to understand the meaning behind it, every single word. So we're limited on what we do. So how then can we determine which words we choose to do this word study, to, to go more in depth. So here is a, a few steps. And so in our first point there, choosing the words to study. Doing a word study properly takes time. So be, be realistic and admit that you cannot possibly study every word in your passage and you still have time for your friends. You have a life. So you, know, you can't spend all your time just getting caught on the every uh, single detail. In fact, you don't, need, you don't need to study every word. Most biblical passages are filled with words whose meanings are clear and plain to us. We don't need to study them. Um, but some words to, do demand more in-depth study, and you need wisdom to know which ones. What should you do at this point? So I put here four steps um, to, to, for this decision. How do you pick a word to study? All right. So the first one is look for words that are crucial to the passage. 
Um, everything in the passage depends on the meaning of these words. They're loaded with historical and theological significance. I mean, if you're studying John chapter 10 and you do not study the word shepherd, the whole pair, you know, the whole point of the passage is the good shepherd. So if you don't study that word, then you're missing things. So it's a, it's a word that is, that is pivotal, that is crucial for you to understand that passage. Um, the, they're loaded with historical and theological significance. They bear the weight of the passage. Often the crucial words in the passage will be the key nouns or verbs. All right. Um, if you look at the directors in Ephesians, their, their commands, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. So love might be a big word to look into that. Um, then um, all for the woman, uh, submit yourself to your husband. So the word submit might be a, a good word to do a word study. Then uh, number two here, look for repeated words. Usually the author will signal theme words by repeating them so close, uh, so to pay close attention to words that are repeated. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me give you here an example. The authors of Scripture, sometimes they, they do this on purpose. They repeat those words because they want to emphasize something. Okay, this word is important. Pay attention. I'm repeating it. It might point to you what is the theme of the passage. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I, I use this passage a lot in counseling, actually. And we're looking at verse 3, starting on verse 3 of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. It says, Blessed be the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as all our sufferings in Christ is are ours in abundance, so also all our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if you're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective, the patient, um, in patient enduring on the same sufferings which we also suffer. And all our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so you are also sharers of our comfort. What repeated words would you pick on this text? Comfort. It's kind of obvious, right? And pretty much in every verse, he uses it one or two times. Uh, what, what other words then? There are some others that are repeated there. Suffer. Um, and kind of similar words, affliction, kind of go together. They're different, but they have um, these. So... And we can go on here giving some other examples. Matthew 5, and the word remain is there many times. Um, so look for repeated words. Uh, number three, look for figures of speech. Figures of speech. Here words are used not in the literal sense, but as word pictures or images. When you read Jesus' statement, I am the gate, 
in John chapter 10, verse 9, you're not imagining that Jesus is an actual gate with a locker and, <laughs> um, you know, hinges. No, he's not saying that. It, it's a figure of speech. Um, and um, or, or you read about trees clapping their hands in worship to God in Isaiah 55. Well, trees don't have hands, and they don't clap. <laughs> but it, it's saying that even creation is worshiping the Lord in that way. So since the meaning of many figures or images is not automatically obvious, you may need to study, to study them further. For example, you know, some, some imageries in the Bible, they might refer to one character or to one thing, and then to refer to a total different one. Um, in another, for example, the, the image of a lion. In Revelation 5.5, 5, Jesus is compared to a lion. He is the lion of Judah. All right? But then in 1 Peter 5, chapter 8, the word lion is used to refer to Satan. And they couldn't be so different, right? Um, so why, why do we, we're trying to get at the figures of speech? Well, especially when you cannot explain that passage in any other way. This doesn't make any sense if I take it literally. So it, it must mean figure, there must be a figure of speech. And if it is a figure of speech, it might stand for something, all right? Now, um, I, I see there's a lot of people that look at things and they say, oh, this is just an allegory, and this is just this is a figure of speech. No, it, it says here, a uh, six-day creation. <laughs> you know, one day means one day, um, night and day, right? Evening and morning, first day. Well, that is a 24-hour day. That's not a whole era kind of day. You're tracking why it's important to, you, to understand when there is figure of speech and when not call something that is supposed to be understood literally as a figure of speech. And then uh, look for words that are unclear or puzzling or difficult. I, I really don't get what the author is getting at. I, now, here's a frustrating thing that I think some of you, please raise your hand if you sympathize with this. You're reading your Bible. And there's this word that is just, this is kind of odd. I don't know. It's kind of the le off of the left field. And then you go to a MacArthur Study Bible or to a commentary, and you're certain they're going to explain that word. And guess what? It's not there. <laughs> it's just, who, who, who can attest to that? It's like, What? The one word that is hard to understand is the one that you don't explain. Well, he's, he's not <laughs> exhaustive. So um, just the other day, Lindsay and I were doing uh, some readings in Acts, and we got caught on one word. It says that Paul gazed at this man, and he saw that he had faith. What does that mean? Uh, uh, how, how did he see that he had faith? It's just his demeanor? or what are, you know? So we, we were scratching our heads and reading commentaries and and I finally found one that hadn't answered <laughs> that question. So, so look for unclear, puzzling words uh, or difficult words. Now, I'm going to give you a, a try here. Let's turn to Psalm 121. Let's do a quick exercise together. And 
I want to see what do you come up with? What words would you choose if you were, you were to study Psalm 121? I, I want you to look for crucial words, words that are really important to understand the text, repeated words, images, or difficult words. All right. So Psalm 121, a song, song of ascents of David. Oh, am I reading? No, song of ascents in Psalm 21. 121. Um, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber or sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at, the, at your right hand, and the sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil, and he will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. All right. Let's um, look for, kind of use the, 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 those strategies. Which words would you come up with and why? Which ones would you, would you pick to study on that passage? Um, we'll have uh, Clint here says, keep and keeper. Yep, that's, that's was a, of the first one. And why would you do that one? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a crucial word for understanding what he's talking about here. The Lord is our keeper. And it is repeated several times. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, um, in the Hebrew, is the, where it says the word he will guard you is also the same word for keeping. So um, the keeper, the guardian, he who keeps you. Um, so that is really the, uh, it points you to the theme of the passage. What else? Which other word would you pick? Yes. Yeah. So the word help. I, I'm so, I think it's so interesting. When I did, I did an assignment on the Hebrew text of Psalm 121, and those words came up. Like, I, you know, we, we were tracking here the same um, help. Actually, if you will recall, some classes, some moons ago, <laughs> uh, we studied chiasm, that is structure. Remember that? They have one thing, A, B, C, and then C, B, A, or no. Yeah, so one points to the, to the middle, it points to the center, and that is a chiastic structure there in verse 1 and 2. I'll lift my eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come? And then my help should come from the Lord. So that points you to, to, to where this word is important. It's in the middle of this. Um, it's repeated in this structure. All right, what else? What other words would you pick to study? Slumber or sleep. Uh, why would you pick those words, Jenny? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And, and you know, it, it might even give you some clue there because a keeper or a w someone that is in watchful state, you know, they don't sleep or slumber. So they, they might give you an, an, even some insight on the other word, <laughs> why he did choose that one. All right, any other thoughts or things that you might have in mind there? The, the word the Lord? Okay, yep. So, um, yeah, you notice that the word the Lord there is all caps, right? So it's the, the word Yahweh um, for God. Why, why did he choose that one and not Elohim, which is the word for God? Um, well, that there might be a point there. Good. So theological words might be helpful as well. Any others? Uh, there was one that I did on, on this uh, figure of speech. Uh, he's being my shade. Right? That, that is a good one. Then I would, you know, I did um, the word mountains. Um, because mountains normally, and that's why I was curious. This is talking about because the mountains were dangerous. You know how, so remember I talked about uh, people coming from Jericho to Jerusalem, and that man got bitten up on the path because it was a dangerous path to go through. So why could it be that he's referring to the mountains because he is really afraid of, of what happened in the mountains and he's looking for the Lord's help? Um, you know, and, and the imagery of slipping, right? Um, that, that could happen <laughs> in a dangerous hike. Um, so the other thing that came to mind was, well, there are some passages that says that God, the unbelievers thought that God was the God of the mountains. So if we go to the playing field, then it's going to lose. Why is that? So what is the, the imagery with mountains? Where did Moses meet the Lord? On a mountain. Where did the, the, the Ten Commandments came? What? On a mountain. So... You see, like, you're just like opening a whole gamut of things to think about when you, when you look at these words. Right? And sometimes your ideas might be right, some of them might not. <laughs> That's why you, you study those words. All right, any questions so far? Oh, okay. Let's keep moving. Then we're getting, now that you picked your words, how do we determine the meaning of a word? Why do we need to? Determine, and I, I don't like the word determine necessarily, but just cover <laughs> the meaning. Uh, because the, the, the meaning is already determined by the author. We're just trying to discover it. Uh, what the word could mean before we decide what it does mean. Because most word can mean several different things. For example, the word spring, for instance, in English, it will only carry one of those meanings in a particular context. By clarifying what a, what a word could mean, we will not confuse the various meanings of a word when interpreting a particular passage of scripture. So consider this scenario. If in the dead of winter, you know, like February, you, you just it's really cold and, and you hear this, someone saying this, it's so cold, I can't wait until spring gets here. Um, now, he would be referring to the arrival, arrival of a much warmer 
season that immediately follows winter, not the arrival of a metal coin, coil, or an improving jumping ability. He's not talking about an actual spring or <laughs> a metal structure to be jumping. That would be awkward if someone you know, had that in mind. Um, so it would be an absurd statement if you understood that way. Um, it's so cold that I can't wait until my jumping ability improves. <laughs> That's not at all what, what it means. So you might begin to wonder if the cold had dulled your friend's senses. <laughs> um, now, I, I do remember in a, the little video that I showed you, uh, that I sent you in the email, um, the Professor Guthrie is explaining some of these things, and he said, you know what comes to mind every time is um, the movie Princess Bride. Some of you are familiar, and that gentleman keeps saying, inconceivable! <laughs> and the, the, the guy eventually turns to him, you keep using that word, and I do not think it means what you think it means. Um, and, and that's true. Like Some people use... I, I'm, I'm sure I use words that make no sense to you because I'm thinking Portuguese sometimes and I'm just translating them straight out. Why is that? Does not make sense to you? Well, because in my context, it might make sense, but not in yours. <laughs> That's why we, when it comes to translations, we, we want to make sure that we get those nuances. All right, so then how do you... The first thing you need to understand is this thing called semantic range, semantic range. So range refers to a variety of possibilities, right? And then semantic has to do with meaning. Once we all see the possible meanings of words, we, what we refer to as words range is the meaning or semantic range. We'll be able, uh, we'll be in a better position to decide what word actually does mean in a specific context. For example, Let's look at the semantic range for the English word hand, just English word hand. To find the range of meaning for an English word, just look it up in a standard English dictionary, or also called a lexicon. That's another word for a dictionary. A glance at the dictionary entry for hand reveals a range of meanings that looks something like this. So he, here's a, a few possibilities. It might be referring to the terminal part of the vertebrate for a limb, my right hand. So the actual physical hand. It could be a personal possession. When someone says, it fell on the hands of the enemy. It's talking about possession. It could be a side. On the one hand, on the other hand, it's an expression. It's talking about sides. It could be a pledge. I'll give you my hand in marriage. I'll take your hand in marriage. It could be a style of penmanship. This letter was written by in my own hand. Remember Paul wrote that? Um, I skill or ability. She tried her hand at sailing. So it could be also a unit of measure. Uh, the horse is 15 hands high. So not, I never heard someone using that. I've seen feet, but not hand. <laughs> It could be referring to aid or assistance. Please lend me a hand. It could refer to cards in a game. I was dealt a hand, a bad hand. Uh, it could refer to one performs a particular work. They employ over 50 hands at that company. So it's actually 
50 hands. You're not trying to do the math. It's referring that one hand, okay, one, someone have two hands, so 50 is like 25. Uh, no, the point is there are 50 workers <laughs> on that place. Um, it could be referring to workmanship or handiwork. The work of master's hand is another expression. So a word's hand, uh, range of meaning or semantic range is a list of all the possible meanings of a word that is a list that the word could mean. You might be thinking, okay, all I need to find my word's range is of the meaning then is to look it up in an English dictionary, right? Mm, wrong. Not really. You see, your word is an English translation of a Hebrew and a Greek Bible. So, and that fact changes things. You, since the Bible was not originally written in English, you're really trying to find the range of meaning for a Greek or a Hebrew word, not in an English, um, not the English word used in the translation. You should use an English dictionary to find the meaning of an English word, but, also, but going straight to your English dictionary to find the range of meaning for a Greek or Hebrew word is a potential big mistake. All right? Um, not, as I said, even sometimes when I use expressions that make sense in Portuguese, it's the equivalent word in English, but it, it does not apply in the same way. So that is one of the barriers with having two different languages that you're translating from. Um, one word in Portuguese will have a range of, of meaning, a variety of meanings, and I might intend one thing. And then in English, this, that same word might have even more meanings or less meanings than my Portuguese word. So you're trying to see where those things overlap. The Hebrew or the Greek overlap with the English. What is the closest that we can come up with? And that's, you know, that most of our Bible translations are pretty good at, at doing that. So both the original language word in Greek or Hebrew and the English word used to translate it will have a semantic range. There will be, sometimes there will overlap between the semantic ranges of the two words. That's what makes a, a translation possible. But the ranges, the ranges will not be identical. We must remember that they are different words and will almost always have different, but overlapping, they will still overlap with each other, ranges of meaning. It will be the presence of other specific words in the context which narrows the semantic range in a given word. This is an example. Let's look at, uh, at a word Jesus uses in the parable of the talents. So Matthew chapter 25 Verse 14, Matthew 25, and we're looking at verse 14. So here's the, here's the verse. Um, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. So if you look up the word entrust in the English dictionary, you will find a fairly narrow range of meaning. Okay, so here's a, a two uh, option. A, to confer, on a tr uh, confer a trust on, to deliver something in trust to. And B, to commit to another with confidence. Those are two meanings you'd, you'd normally find in the English dictionary. Now, you might be surprised to, know, to learn that in Greek, the word 
that is being translated there as entrust is paradidomi. Um, the word that the Nasbi translate as entrust has a much broader uh, range of meaning. So here's a few possibilities of what that Greek word means. A, to hand over something to someone. B, to deliver someone into the control of someone else or to betray. C, to command or commit. D, to pass on traditional, tradition, traditional instruction. And E, to grant someone the opportunity to do something, to allow them or to permit them. All right, so the, the Nazbi can use the word entrust to translate the Greek word paradidomi because the semantic range of these two words, these two words overlap. Um, in Jesus' parable, the, mast, the master is entrusting in the sense of what? Which one of the possibilities that I mentioned do you think it was? Uh, a, to hand over something to someone. B, to deliver someone into control of someone else or to betray them. Uh, C, to command or commit. Um, D, to pass on traditional instruction. And E, to grant someone the opportunity to do something, to allow them or to permit them. A, yeah. So to hand over, he's handing over or entrusting his property to his servants right? while he was away on a journey. So in spite of this essential overlap between the two words, there are different words with different ranges of meaning. So here's where things get tricky. We could get into interpretive trouble if we say, were to say, for example, the English word entrust could mean betray, which cannot, or that the Greek word paradidomi could never mean betray, which can. So in English, that entrust, it never could mean betray. But in Greek, it does. You see how there's a range of meaning? And so if you look at the chart down there, there is um, the semantic range, right, that, that the possibilities that word could mean. But then there is one just narrow meaning that it is used and it is focused on the context of that one verse. So the danger of misinterpreting by confusing the semantic ranges for different words. Avoid the temptation to pick just any meaning from the list of possible meanings and read that meaning back into the passage. Um, the, the word, there is a word in Hebrew that, oh my goodness, was so puzzling to me. Um, it was, I forgot exactly, but it's the word for love in Hebrew that at times it, it could mean love, and at other times, it means hate. I mean, you couldn't be <laughs> more, more. Um, so it's just the context will determine when it's used in one way or the other. Um, it says that, I, I think it's the one where it says, Jacob loved Rachel uh, more than Aaliyah. So... Um, always keep in mind, as well as the original language word and the translation word, are different words with different ranges of meaning that overlap to some degree. That overlap is what makes the translation possible. I'm repeating myself here, but your task is to locate where is this point of overlap. You have this variety of meanings that, that are possible. 
But then there is one that the author intended for that context, and that's the what are you looking for. So before that, how about we do one more example here? Turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. So if you let's look at the word confidence there. If you look at an English dictionary, here's a poss- few possible ranges of meaning in English. Confidence is A, a feeling of one's ability or power. B, a belief that a person will act in a proper, effective way. C, being certain about something. D, a relation of trust or intimacy. For example, to take someone into confidence. Or E, it's a secret. I.e., a communication made in confidence is a confident, you know, a communication made in secret. The NASV selects the word confidence in Hebrews 4.16 to translate the underlying Greek word parousia. Have you, um, let's just take a look at the range of meaning of parousia, the, the Greek word there. All right. A, a plainness or frankness. For example, Jesus told his disciples plainly. That's the word parousia there. He told them, he spoke to them clearly in a plain sense. B, Openness to the public. Jesus speaks publicly to the crowds in the temple courts, John 7, 26. And then number three, boldness, courage, or confidence, approaching the throne of grace with confidence. So most likely the English word confidence and the Greek word parousia overlap in the sense of C, number C here which is, um, in both lists, so it will be a little harder to tell in this case. What is clear from the context is that the author of Hebrews does not want his readers to approach the throne of grace with a feeling of their own power or trust in their own ability. Because if you read the the verses around it, he's really talking about our weaknesses, So for me to come and say, oh, look how confident I am on myself to come to the throne of grace, that is not the picture. He's talking about him sympathizing about for our weaknesses. So what does it mean then? Such a a word blunder would suggest a rejection of Christ's work, if I think of of that in in my own self-importance and confidence. It suggests a rejection of Christ's work in favor of a mere human effort. No, our confidence is more of a certainty about what our high priest has done rather than a reliance on what we can do. Because the work of Jesus, our high priest, has been performed, we may approach God's throne for help when we face temptation. That is the point. You you see how it is nuanced for us to to, to look at the meaning of words? Because they can mean a variety of things. And um, next week, we're actually going to study some pitfalls of studying, um, doing word studies. All right? So save save those thoughts for for next week. Then I'll I'll add one more thing here. Um, I think this is kind of high level, but I want you guys to be high level understanding things. Um, so that expression, hapax legomenon, it's, uh, it was an ex- a Greek expression. 
And it means words that are only used once. It's a word that is only used once. So those words, they tend to be a little bit more tricky to find the meaning because you don't have other words to compare with. You don't have other contexts to compare with because this happens only once. So the Greek particle legomenon says having, it means having said, and the Greek word hapax means once. While these words are often discernible by looking at their compound parts, you have the prefix of a word, you have the root of the word, and you have the suffix at the end of the word. Um, there is a danger in doing that, and next week we'll get more in-depth into this. Um, You've probably seen some people make big deal out of words. Okay, this, this word is a, it's a conjunction of this word and this word. Sometimes it helps. For instance, the word homologeo is the word for confessing our sins. It a, uh, basically means saying the same word. So it's word and same. So you're calling your sin while God calls it a sin. So it helps to understand that half of the word means this and the other half means this. But we can't go too far on this. Like for, for instance, just think about the English word butterfly. You're not thinking of a fly that fell into the butter <laughs> or, you know, that is buttered. It's not, you know, you can't do that with, with every word to break it apart and trying to explain it. Um, and particularly with these words, now with these words, then breaking it apart might be helpful because there's nothing else for you to compare. So is there a common root here that might help me to understand it? So just keep this in mind. I'm not going to quiz you on this, but I just wanted to level up here, um, your understanding. Now, that, back to our main task, determining the meaning of a word. And I'm not going to go very far on this, but I'll give you some examples um, our church library, if I'm not mistaken, um, I don't know Jenny maybe can confirm this. Do we have a concordance there? Yeah, so Str Strong's concordance is a very common one. Um, next week, what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll show you on free websites that you can do this kind of thing for free. You know, you, you just do it online. It's simple. You just hover over and you can find the meaning of a word. You know, but we do have physical copies of Strong Dictionary here where you can open and look up the meaning of that word in the original language. So you don't need to know Hebrew or Greek because it is written in English. And then, it, obviously, there's a, um, a transliteration there of the, the Greek word. So the first step is to use an exhaustive concordance to locate the original meaning, the Hebrew and Greek, and in the examples below, you know, our textbook uses a lot of the NIV exhaustive concordance, the strong concordance. So some of the passages that I'm reading here um, might be similar to the NASV, but some of them might not. But I just want you to focus on the, on the different, the semantic range that you might find. So the main thing is that you use a concordance that matches the version of the Bible that you're using. So... As you see the definitions of a word and the different ways the word can be translated into English, you will begin to feel, to have a feel for what that word could mean. Example, the semantic range. In this section, you will learn how to use an English resource to find the original Hebrew or Greek word. Those word definitions provided in the concordance are merely ways in which that the NIV had translated from the Greek and the Hebrew. 
So you don't have to feel bound by the way that your translation translated. translated. So let's learn through how to use a concordance with the Old, uh, Old Testament word. Do you remember how Joseph was in Egypt? Um, he was brought into Egypt. His brother sold him into his slavery there to um, Ishmaelite merchants who took him there. And then in Egypt, he found this job. He was working for this guy named Potiphar uh, who purchased Joseph. The story takes a sordid twist at this point because Potiphar's wife wanted Joseph to go to bed with her, but he kept refusing. Remember that? Um, Am I too off? (laughs) Okay. So on that occasion, when he was attending to his household duties and there were no other servants around, Potiphar's wife grabbed Joseph's cloak and demanded that he sleep with her. Joseph ran for his life, leaving his cloak in her hand. She then called the other servants and accused Joseph of making a sport. So turn to to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39, verse 14 and 15. So verse 14 and 15 of that passage says, See, this is the woman speaking, He has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me, and I screamed. When I heard that I raised my voice, and I screamed. He left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. Now, to know more about the expression make sport of, look up the word sport on the strongest NIV exhaustive concordance, okay? So they, normally they will assign a number for that word in, in, in Hebrew or Greek, whatever it is. And then you look up that number and it will give you the variety of the semantic range. So that one, that word translated as making sport, um, is, you will see in the back of the concordance. So here's a, the, the different entries because it will list all the times that word was used either on, on the, New, the Old Testament or in the New Testament, if it is uh, the Greek. So we, it is used in Genesis 39, 14, the one that we just read. It's used in Genesis 39, 17, where he's repeating the same thing, brought us to, make, to, to me to make sport of me. And then Psalm 69, 11 says that people makes sport of me. All right. Then what is the list of definitions? So just cut a little piece there of the, the, the dictionary so you can see. The original word is sahak, sahak in Hebrew. And it could mean a variety of things here. It could mean uh, to laugh or to mock, to make sport, caress someone. This can mean to laugh with delight or scorn or to laugh or laugh to make sport, caressing, indulge in revelry. Uh, it could mean joking, it could be mocking or performed. So in other words, just by, by using the concordance, you can discover how a variety of, of, of meanings in the original Hebrew and Greek. So then we'll close here real quick in uh, the context studies. We'll, we'll come back to, um, we need to go one step further. What if you're studying the word um, Door, for instance, in the New Testament, where Paul says, Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, when a door was opened for me in the Lord. 
the NASB translates the word door from the Greek thyra, which is, uh, could be translated as door, doors, gate, entrance, doorway, gates, or outer entrance. But in 2 Corinthians 2.12, it is obvious that when Paul uses this word here, he's talking about an opportunity for ministry, not a physical door. He's not talking about the door of the city being opened, the city of Troas being opened. He's figuratively speaking of an opportunity came up. So this is bringing us to the second thing you need to discover a word's range of meaning. You must examine the context to see how your word is used. The one rule is doing word study that rules all other other rules, overrules other all other rules, is context determines the word meaning. So it it, it could mean all these things, but it meaning only means one thing in your context. All right. It, it, it's like you can say the expression, oh, this person is nice. Or you, 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 know, you understand the word and meaning of nice, and you hear, all, you hear the word, he's nice and fat. What? what, what, is, what that's weird and, and rude. Even then, the speaker might be referring to not a person, but a hog. <laughs> so it's actually a good thing that he's nice and fat. We cannot simply study a word by itself. Um, we need to understand it in its own context. So let's take our, back to our example here in making sport of. Okay? What, is, what is the potential meaning for that? How should it be translated? Here you see a variety of ways in the original Hebrew word can be translated in English. Laugh or laughed, make sport of, or caressing, or and so on. Then you look up every word in that list in the main part of the concordance to check the context. As you check the context of the Hebrew and the, the word transliterated, you might come up with a semantic range similar to what you see below here. And I listed that example for you so you can read it. Um, A, okay, so I, I want you to pay attention. What do you think that words mean in that context of Genesis 39? A, to laugh, expressing doubt and disbelief. For example, in Genesis 18.13, remember what Sarah did? That's the word there, the, making, the same word for making sport. It says, the Lord, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, that's the word there, and say, we really have a child now that I'm old? B, to laugh expressing joy in a positive change of circumstances engineered by God. Here's the same word, but used in a positive sense. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. She's talking about the joy of having a child. C, to caress physically. Genesis 26, 8. When Isaac had been there for a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac doing what? Caressing his wife. That's the same word there. D, to ridicule or mock, Genesis 21.9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, had born to Abraham, was mocking. Same word. To revel or play, perhaps or in an immoral way, uh, Exodus 32 says. The next, so the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge 
in reverie. That's the word. Uh, indulge in reverie is the same word being used there. And then lastly, to joke. So Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-law and pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. And his son's-in-law thought he was joking. And then lastly, to perform entertainment. Judges 16.25 says, When, while they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of prison, and he performed to them. So any guesses which category this makes sport in Genesis 39 means and the, with the wife of Potiphar? Which one of these meanings from letters A to, to, to G would you think it fit best with um, the understanding of that passage? What is it, Kathy? See, anyone thinks differently from Kathy? No, so letter C, to caress physically, hmm, um, where, yeah, it was just a joke, yep, I agree with Kathy, I think that that is the, the word there. So in summary, today, before you decide what your word does mean, you need to determine what it could mean, what are the possibilities, and then you um, use a concordance to find the original Hebrew and Greek and see its definition, its translation into English. Now, sometimes the concordance doesn't do a whole lot for you because it, it will basically just list all, all the possible uh, things that has been used in the scripture. Uh, there's another resource called the lexicon, which is more like a dictionary, and they will expand that definition. All right, so we're going to do some of this next week, but let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your great mercy toward us. Thank you for giving us um, tools. I just think about 100 years ago how difficult it was to make some of these studies, and today, Lord, we have it at our fingertip um, to look at your word in the original language, and even though we don't know, we might not know Hebrew or Greek, we can get to the exact meaning of a certain word in its context. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us um, to, to be devoted in our understanding and to be committed um, to grow in our um, understanding of who you are and what you require of us. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen.